If you got your Bibles, turn to John uh, 14. Good morning. Well, um, we're picking up where uh, the story has taken us, and uh, we are in the upper room with Jesus, and uh, if you remember, uh, Judas has left as part of the betrayal, and uh, Jesus had the conversation with Peter, um, prophesying that he would be denying him, and that whole thing sets up uh, the very beginning of this chapter and, and what it says right off the bat. Um, so we're going to look at verse one, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. And so Jesus starts right there saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Now it, it's pretty obvious that at this point in time, their hearts are troubled. This is a fascinating thing. Um, I'm a brilliant scholar, but uh, just by being able to look at what Jesus says there, you can see this picture of the fact that Jesus stops and says to them, don't be troubled. The only reason he would say that is because they are troubled, that they're, they're wrestling with things. And what they're wrestling with is the fact that the Jews want to kill Jesus and they keep fleeing from him are fleeing from them, and that Judas himself, they weren't even sure it was Judas, but as he dipped the bread, he says, the one who I give the bread will betray me. He's talking about betrayal. He's talking about the fact that he's going to leave, and they're not going to be able to follow, but he's going to leave them. They're bummed about that. And then, as we heard Tim last week talk about that whole thing where their rock star, Peter, is going to deny him three times before morning comes. So at this point in time, they're kind of bummed. This whole thing is not finishing the well the way they thought it would. It's actually feeling like it's disintegrating a little bit. And so as they get all of this news, Jesus is not ending on a high note in their mind. And so at this point, their hearts are troubled. And then Jesus does this thing where he says, let not their hearts be troubled as if that's going to make it all better. Oh, let not their hearts be troubled. It's like saying, if you're hungry, oh, be filled. And leaving it at that. And it's like, wait, that doesn't do anything for me. Give me a burrito or something. That might help me. But to just say those words isn't enough. And if we think that that's all Jesus does is say, say words, then we stop right there. But what we have to understand is what this passage does from verse 1 to verse 14 is it literally is Jesus giving the answer for why their hearts should not be troubled. And in order to understand this, we've got to get into the minds of the disciples for just a second. They've got all this bad news going on. They're wrestling with all the things that aren't going the way they thought they would. Most of the time that we're discouraged, that we're sad, that we're distraught, it's because we have an imagination in our mind the way the world should be. And when the world goes any other direction than that, we start to lose hope. We start to get upset. It spoils our day. It ruins our mood simply because this was our expectation. And when our expectation wasn't met, things go down from there. So the disciples, they're looking at it and going, Jesus is awesome. We hooked up with a right rabbi. He's a wonderful teacher. He does these miracles to boot. He might even be king someday. This is awesome. We get to be his disciples. They're all excited by that right up until Jesus says, yeah, I'm leaving and you guys are going to make a mess of things for a little bit here. So they're looking at their expectation and going, that isn't what our expectation is. And their hearts are troubled because of that. So that's 
that's what they're feeling. But this idea of expectations, you might look at it and think, if these are the expectations, and if in the end, Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be troubled, what we do oftentimes is we lower our expectations. So I do this all the time with sports teams, that if I look at it, sometimes I will look at a game and I will wait until the game's over, watch and see what the score is, and if the team wins, then I might watch it. But if my team loses, I, I lower my expectations. And, and so like from Seattle, it was the Mariners in baseball. It was pretty easy to just lower the expectations. They were going to lose. I went into every game imagining that they were going to lose. We do that, and we do that with Jesus, and we do it with God. And this is what starts happening is they've lowered their expectations. Their expectations are misplaced. They saw Jesus doing one thing. But the concept here is that their expectations are not too high. That's not the problem. They don't need to lower their expectations to catch up with Jesus and to be okay with him. That literally, Jesus is doing just the opposite. What Jesus is about to do here is he is about to raise the bar. The problem with their expectations is they're not high enough. When they look at Jesus, they have an idea in their mind of who he is and what he's going to accomplish for them. And Jesus is doing a whole other thing, but they're disappointed that he's not doing this thing they had their expectations set for. That's what happens next is Jesus meets them there in this situation where their hearts are troubled because of what Jesus told them he was about to do. They're upset about it. And he turns it around and stops and says, let not your hearts be troubled. And what he does next is he teaches truth. He teaches theology. He actually gives them a right way of thinking. He says, you're thinking wrong. Here's how to think about it. And that's what we jump into here is is that whole idea. The first thing he does is first off, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And theologians wrestle with this, this idea because it can go one of three ways in, in actual grammar of it. The believe in God, believe also in me could be, you believe in God, believe also in me. So in other words, just like you believe in God, do the same with me. It could be translated that way, or it could just be believe in God, believe in me. It could be If you believe in God, then believe also in me because I am God. But all three of those, there's not enough in the grammar to tell us which one's which. What we know is the common thing that he says is believe. Believe me. Believe me. If you've been following me and you trust me, believe me. Don't be troubled in heart, but actually believe me. And then he begins to lay out some more truth. The first one in verse two is, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So here, he suddenly makes a shift and he talks about his father's house. And we get the picture of heaven pretty quickly. Whereas the father, he's in heaven. He talks about going to the father's house. And this idea of what heaven is in our mind is that we begin to have a picture of golden streets and pearly gates, right? 
Revelations 21 paints a pretty clear picture of heaven. And if we take that picture of heaven, we've got some great things. We've got a city, that it, the, the country of heaven, it talks about in Hebrews. And it says that the saints long for a better country. And then it says that in that country was the city of God, which is the new Jerusalem. 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles deep by 1,500 miles high. Now, the high part has always got me baffled because we live more on a dimension right here on flat. And so it's like, are there just like a lot of bunk beds? What is that with heaven when it's 1,500 miles high? The city is massive. To put it in perspective, that's 1,500, not square miles, cubed miles. And what we're talking about when we talk about a city like London is we're talking 140 square miles for a big city like London. And this is 1,500 cubed miles. It's incredible the size of it. It's incredible the scope of it. When John sees it in Revelation 21, he is fascinated by it. He is in awe of it. The jewels on the walls, the walls are jasper. The gates are made with pearl. There's an angel at every gate. But Jesus is not actually trying to sell you heaven. You know how I know that? is the description of heaven I gave you is from Revelations 21, not from John 14. He actually says nothing other than the fact that he's preparing a place for us there. And this concept actually builds on the idea that if you are, if you, your family has a home and it has property, you're like farming, ranching, that kind of thing, that when you went out and if you were the, a man and a boy in that family, a son, you would go out and find your bride and get married and that literally your dad would let you build onto his house your own home. So you would add a room onto the house so that the family would stay together, continue to take care of the property. So you can find these houses in, in Israel, in the Middle East, where families just simply add on because the son went out and got the bride and came back and added, an, added on a room. This is what's happening when he says, I have gone to prepare a place for you. And properly trans, well, translated, it's not mansion, it's actually room. But that idea is what Jesus is talking about. I am going to go and I'm going to bring the bride back. But before I do, I have to actually have a room ready to bring you back to. So he's talking about that. But he doesn't sell heaven. What he sells isn't the place. It's the person. It's the person. Now listen to this. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. The whole reason being that where I am, you may be also. That what he's saying is the whole reason for doing this is so that I can bring you to be with me. In fact, the idea that I am going to prepare a place for you is the idea of what is he about to do. He's going to actually die on the cross, that his death, his shed blood will actually create a way for us who are sinful and flawed can actually come before a holy and righteous God. The preparing the way is actually him dying on the cross. So that we can be in heaven with him. So that he will return and take us to be among, with him. But this becomes the question. Two weeks ago, Darren was talking about Judas betraying. And he gave the question, who's your Judas? 
who might have betrayed you in your life? And he asked the question, who's your Judas? And then last week, Tim comes up and he simply stopped and he was talking about Peter and the denying and he, he used the phrase, who's your Peter? Well, that teed it up really great for me. I get a rock star instead of these other two and I get, who's your Jesus? This question lays right here in the thick of it. Who's your Jesus? When you think of heaven, are you more excited about the, the streets of gold and about the beauty that it might be? It's an awesome place. It's really cool. That's going to be great. But that's not what Jesus tries to sell here. Jesus actually says, because I am going to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself that we can be together. And the question is, who's your Jesus Do you get more excited about heaven and less about Jesus? Or do we get more excited by the fact that we actually have this opportunity of being in the presence of Jesus Christ? That's the the first one that he lays out. And then he goes into this, if I go and prepare a place for you, he says all of that. This idea of the place is that if I prepare, he's preparing a place for us, but he's also preparing us for that place. There's work to be done in us before we can even be there. And that's the work that he's going to do. Then he switches it around and he says this, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas raises his hand, doesn't say that, but it means that. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. I love Thomas in this picture because lots of times we put Thomas down because he's the doubter. He's the one that that questions whether Jesus was really crucified, rose again. And so he has questions for Thomas. What I love is that Thomas does the things I would do. Thomas stops and asks the question, wait, you said, and you know the way I'm going, I don't know the way. Now think about it. If Thomas would have asked, wouldn't have asked, we wouldn't have got this truth. The fact of the matter is too often we're in school or we're somewhere and somebody says something and we all nod as if we know and we don't have a clue. I've done that myself where somebody says something and I don't ask and I just, I don't, I feel like I'll be stupid if I don't answer or don't act like I know. So I'll just nod like I know. And I'm like, I have no clue what they're talking about. Some of you are doing that now. Yeah, he's talking. Oh, good point, Jeff. What's he talking about? That's what too many people do. Thomas stops and goes, I don't know what you're talking about. What the heck are you talking about? And this is what Thomas does. He gives us this gift by asking the question, which is a hint, by the way, to ask Jesus questions. Ask God. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus comes in and gives this verse that so many of us know by heart. So Jesus says, I am the way. It's like, Thomas, right here, look at me. It's actually me. So it's like, we don't know the way. And he's like, duh, yeah, you do. I'm it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So we love that, that Jesus is the way. We love it that he's the truth. We love it that he's the life. That all sounds really good, but if he would just stop there, it would make it easier for so many people. Because what he says next is, is that no man comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. He suddenly jumps to this exclusive claim that says you can't get to heaven. You can't get to the Father. You can't get there apart from me. And that sounds arrogant. The world says that. The world says of our faith that Christianity is an arrogant faith. It says it's the only way to God. 
Well, that's exactly what Jesus, who is God, said. He said it just that way. And the world comes in and says, ah, I don't know if I, I want to believe in a God who only has one way to get to him. So let's talk about exclusivity just for a second, because the way this lays out is similar to anything else in our life and to a lot of things in our life. So for example, when I lived in Seattle, there was a guy that lived there right on the shores of Lake Washington. Um, his name was Bill Gates. And Bill Gates, some of you might have heard of him. Bill Gates had some money, a lot of money, and he had a really fancy house, and you couldn't really see the house. It was covered in trees and had a fence around the compound, that kind of a thing. But there was one particular point that if you're driving across the bridge over the lake, you could look over and you could see right where his boat dock was and, and boats and things like that. And it was Bill Gates's house, as much as I ever got to see of it. But if I decided I wanted to see more, all I had to do was just go walk into the house, right? Yeah, that's not going to happen. I can go knock on the door and they, I wouldn't even get past the front gate. They wouldn't let me on the property. It would be exclusive that no one would get on the property except for those who Bill Gates determined he wanted on his property. So if I got in the car with Bill Gates and Bill Gates brought me in, they would open the gate, he would open the door, I would get to come into the house. That's not an unusual request that somebody would have exclusive ownership of that which is theirs. This is what Jesus is saying when he stops, no man comes to the Father but by me. He's saying these rules are set in place and you can't get there apart from me. But lest you think it's like some high-rent gated community, I want to put this idea back down to common level. About a month ago, uh, my wife and I were getting gas on the corner of Harbor and Imperial, and there's a homeless individual who's there all the time. We've driven by him multiple times, and I decided it's time to finally meet this guy and to get to know him and to see what we can do to maybe help him over time. So I come up to him and he's sitting down on the corner and he's got a pile of stuff around him and he's kind of talking to himself. And I said, excuse me, what's your name? And he just looked the other way and kept talking. And now suddenly I'm like, all right, now what do I do? Except that because I used to work with the homeless, I realized that I'm kind of placing myself in a different position. So I simply get down on the sidewalk and I get next to him right in front of him. And I just say, hi, I'm Jeff. And I took his hand and I shook his hand and I said, what's your name? And he says, Eric. And I said, Eric, where are you staying? And he pointed where he was staying and we began a conversation. Now, the fascinating thing about this is that Eric simply looked at me when I was standing and said, look, if you're just going to walk by and stand there and talk to me, I don't want to deal with you. But if you're going to stop and engage with me on my terms, then I'll talk. That even Eric, in his position where he's pretty much lost everything, he still has parameters and he still has concerns. And he goes, the world works this way for me. All of us do that. We have certain ways that these are our terms. Well, here's the terms for Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. But it's not just a restrictive tone that he's saying nobody gets to come except you come through me. He's saying that you can't be in the presence of an almighty, holy, righteous God unless your sin has been covered by my blood and therefore you are made holy, then you can be in the presence of the Father. You can't get there apart from the price I'm about to pay. 
the way I'm about to pave, the thing I'm about to do so that we can indeed be with the Father. What's striking about this is that Jesus is the one that's suffering. Jesus is the one going through difficult things right now. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he's about to be betrayed. He knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to be whipped. He's going to have a crown of thorns thrust upon his head. He's going to drag a cross through through Jerusalem in shame. And he's going to be crucified, taking on all of our sins and be separated from the Father. This is all about to happen to him. He has reason for his heart to be troubled. And you know what he does during that time? He comes up to the disciples to encourage them and to comfort them and care for them. Do you remember when we were talking about the washing of feet, that Jesus washed their feet? None of the disciples offered to wash his feet. What's wrong with that? Why is it that we just think so much about ourselves and our own needs that we miss the point of what's happening? The disciples are at the same here. Jesus is about to undergo just incredible pain and suffering And they're concerned because our expectations are not quite being met the same way. This is the story as it starts. And this exclusivity thing is not just with the world, it's with all of us. This problem that we kind of want God to be a certain way. So we talk about designer gods. That literally we, the created beings, begin to stop and go, I don't know if I want to believe in a God who acts this way or does this or doesn't do that. And so we decide, I'll come up with a God who will be better, which is a terrifying thing. I've seen some of what you guys make, and it's not necessarily good. That if we stop and look around at what this world is, it's filled with sin, it's filled with, filled with brokenness. And for us in that state to start to design gods, it becomes pretty problematic that if I were God, I would do things this way. And we're most of the time wrestling with this because we have certain things we bring to God that we think he's supposed to do for us. For example, if we have something broken, we think he's going to fix it, like he's some kind of holy plumber. If we are financially strapped, we go to him as a banker to somehow settle our finances. If we're in a position where we need advice, we need wisdom, we call him as if he's an attorney and he's going to give us advice. If we're sick or somebody in our family is sick, we call him as if he's a doctor and that's what he's there for is to heal. We place all of these labels on him because that's what we want. That's what our desires would be. And that's the situation that the disciples are doing here. And it's not limited to just them. Even Mary, when she's at the wedding with Jesus and the disciples and they run out of wine, they've got a problem, she's got to fix her. She knows that Jesus fixes problems. And so she calls Jesus and says, could you take care of that, please? And that's what she does. And even when Lazarus dies, both Mary and Martha and some of the other family, when Jesus finally arrives, they look at him and say, if you would have only come sooner, you could have healed him not realizing that he's about to raise him from the dead. He has so much more power. Does this start to sound like the disciples? Expectations down here? It's not that they're too low. It's that they're not high enough. That even what we do with God is like, you're a doctor or you're a lawyer or you're a plumber. That's not who Jesus is. And that becomes our question this morning. Who is your Jesus? Who is he? Who is he to you and and what do you think of him in the middle of all of this? This question continues to, to 
grind it out. But the next question that comes from Philip, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say then, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So Philip even just not getting it. So I want to give you a list of four things. And if you've got a piece of paper, you can write these things down. It's not imperative that you do, but the, the four things are to just give you a little bit of contrast of what we do with this, that from our own limitations. And I want to give you a quote from Spurgeon. You don't have to write down Spurgeon's quote, but he says, a very small book would hold most men's learning and every line would have a mistake. A very small book, small book would hold most men's learning. In this case, most women go, amen. Because, you know, anyway, a very small book would hold most men's learning. And even in what we all know, every line would have a mistake. And that is so true in my life. What I think I know later on, I go, oh, I totally missed that one. I blew that. Spurgeon's right. But here's how it plays out four areas that our limitations kind of get in the way and why we shouldn't be designing God. But number one, it's simply a lack of understanding. We just don't get so much. There's so much we don't know. Number two is that we have physical and spiritual shortcomings. There are certain things I just can't even do physically. And there are certain things I can't do spiritually. Physically, I want to do the things that I would just be strong and buff or fast or have endurance or whatever it might be, but my body just won't do all those things. And spiritually, I have the same thing where my, my will, my spirit, I want to do certain things and I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. We can remember Paul in that. And then the third one is flawed expectations. This is what we're talking about with the disciples, where we have certain expectations of who God is and what he's going to do, and we put it out there, but because of misunderstandings and the lack of other things we have, even our expectations are off. And then finally, number four is selfish, sinful nature that chases after its own desires. That's what motivates us most of the time on our choices. Now, here's why I wanted you to write them down. If you've got them there, and I'll go through them one more Lack of understanding, physical and spiritual shortcomings, flawed expectations, and selfish and sinful natures and desires. The reason why I wrote, wanted you to write them down is because what I want you to do is right next to them is I want you to have a perspective of who God is and what he says about himself. The first one, misunderstanding, this whole time of the lack of understanding, what does he know? Everything. He's omniscient. And then the second one, when it comes down to physical or spiritual shortcomings, he has none. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And then the next one of having flawed expectations, he doesn't have any flawed expectations. His expectations are perfect because he's, he's omnipresent. He's been there. He's already seen it. He knows. And finally, this last one where we have selfish and sinful desires, here we have a God who's selfless and filled with love. The contrast of the two are complete opposites. It's why we shouldn't be in the business of designing gods and telling God how he should be and recognizing who he is. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is me. And we sit there with Peter, with Thomas, with Philip, a little bit confused about the whole thing. But 
Last illustration on this, and then we're going to jump into the, the tougher part of the passage. There's a, there's a little thing called an Echo Dot. Um, it's Amazon's way to spy on you. You buy one of these, and then they can listen to everything you want, and they'll put it on your, your feed, that kind of stuff. But you can talk to a, an Echo Dot. Basically, it's Alexa. How many of you have, an, have one? A few of you. Some of you might have a Google one that does that, but basically you can talk to it and it answers back. It can do certain things for you. We just got one. It was a gift to us and somebody gave it to us with some light bulbs. And the idea was we have this Alexa now and the Alexa sits there and you can talk to Alexa. And so they bought us this light and the light has a smart bulb in it. And then what happens is I have grandkids living in my house right now. So I want them to think that I'm magic. And so I walk up to the light and I say, Alexa, turn on the light. The light comes on magically. And the kids are like, oh, how did that happen? And then Alexa, turn the light off. And the light goes off. Alexa, turn the light blue. And the light turns blue. Alexa, turn the light pink. And the light turns pink. Alexa, turn the light red. And so I'm feeling wonderful in all my power. This is great. But then guess what the grandkids want to do? Papa, Papa, can we try it? Can we try it? Yeah, go ahead and try it. So they run over to the light. Alexa, turn the light pink. And nothing happens. Alexa, turn the light blue. Alexa, turn the light green. Nothing. Because Alexa's over there. They come and they talk to the light because whenever something happened, the light would go on and off. The light would change colors and they were talking to the light and not to Alexa. I still haven't told them. No, they figured it out on their own. But here's the thing. We do this with God. We are so into what he's doing that we actually look away from who he is. We're fascinated by the fact that he can turn lights blue or green or pink when the reality is, is it's the person of Jesus that matters. It's not the works that he does. It's who he is. The miracles that happen in the New Testament are wonderful, but that's all they are is miracles. What he's doing, his purpose on earth, isn't to do a magic show. It's actually come save us. It's to actually come die for us. It's actually to make a way so that we could live for eternity with the Father and with the Son. That's the whole point of this. But here comes the problematic passages. We're going to jump to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I don't know about you, but I can read those verses and I can say greater things than you, Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't see that. He, he fed 5,000. Well, I did used to work at food service at Hume and we fed a lot of people, but not that same way. Walk on water, heal people from blindness, Turn water into wine. When we start talking about these things, you look at it and say, greater things than these will we do? And I look at it and go, yeah, I don't see that. And so you know what I do? Is I lower my expectations. I bring it down and I go, it must mean something else. 
Now, trust me, I'm not saying that it's not just about faith. You need to have more faith. And the reason you haven't done greater things is because you don't believe. We're going to talk about it in just a second. But this, this verse actually becomes problematic for most of us. We wrestle with it. And the one right after it is, is not much better. When he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Like some kind of genie, if we just rub it, that Jesus is there to say, I will do it. I will answer any of your prayers. Just ask, I will do it. So many of you know that we lost our son-in-law a few months back. And um, we were in Colorado with my daughter and with him as he was fighting for his life. And in the process, our youngest daughter, who lives in Tennessee, she was getting updates on the entire situation. And as she would hear the updates, they progressively got worse and worse. And as the situation got more desperate, she told us she went into her room, she got on her bed, and she began to cry out to God. And she began praying with all the earnest faith that she could have. She cried tears, she cried out loudly, she cried in every way she could to God to say, God, please don't let this happen. And then Cody died. So where is God in that? That if she comes and says, this is what I'm asking for, then why isn't greater things? And if you say I ask anything and I've asked it, you're not answering my prayers, then what is this passage about? And I don't know, D- Darren's out of town, and so we're going to close with that. And it's just gonna... <laughs> Why does he give me these passages and then leave town? I don't know. But anyway, no, here's the deal. First off, the concept that we would just simply ask anything and God would do it is a crazy idea. Mark Twain wrestled with this idea of all theologians out there. He comes up and he talks about the story of these two widows who lived side by side and they were friends. They were neighbors. They lived in separate houses. They got to know each other, but at night they would go home and they would go to bed. And one of the name, one of the widows, she had a cat because she had lost her husband. She didn't have any children and she just felt alone. So she got this cat and the cat was like family to her. She loved this cat and the cat was really cuddly and would always be there for her and this was wonderful. But at night she would put the cat outside because the cat would keep her awake. And so as she put the cat out, she would go to bed, but invariably around 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night, the cat would get involved in a cat fight. And so the cat's out in the yard and starting this cat fight. And so you would hear this, that's a cat. I know it didn't sound like a cat, but that's in my, in my head. That was perfect. But that's what the cat's doing. And she's laying in her bed. She wakes up, she hears this cat fight and she stops and she says, Oh Lord, I just thank you so much for this cat and the gift it is to me. And Lord, as this cat fight goes on, I ask you to protect my cat, keep my cat safe tonight because you know how much that cat means to me. And then she cuddles up in the covers because she's taken her burden and she's put it on to the Lord. God's going to answer that prayer. Meanwhile, her neighbor, who's had a hard time sleeping of late, because every night, right around midnight, there's a cat fight right outside her window. So she stops and she prays, oh Lord, you know how much I need my rest. Please let me get this rest. I need it. I have a busy day tomorrow. Lord, would you please kill that cat tonight? So here's God held hostage 
by this honest and good desire and by this honest and good desire, but they conflict and they can't both be that way. You see, when we stop and we come to God and we think that these verses are a a carte blanche credit card for us to go do whatever we want, we've missed who Jesus is. We've misunderstood everything about who he is. And we come to him as if, hey, will you turn the light blue? Will you turn the light green? Will you do the things that I want that will entertain me, that will make me feel better? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what will make you feel better. The Father's will. And you know what the Father's will is? That we would be one with him. That we would actually be in presence with him. That God himself would be together with us. The disciples had it at this moment and they didn't even realize it. They're having this conversation with Jesus. And do you know what it would be like if today, right now, through the roof, the voice of God just boomed out? E.V. Free, oh, I can't do that. E.V. Free Fullerton. This is God. And it was deeper, better voice. Whatever, more powerful. But if God spoke to us verbally, audibly, would we not treasure that completely? Would that not be awesome that we would hear the audible voice of God communing with us, wanting to talk with us, that he might call us by name? How wonderful would that be? Jesus says, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? He calls Philip by name. Jesus is God. Who is your Jesus? This moment right there is that they have Jesus speaking audibly to them and they don't even get it. That's the gift. Not that we can turn a light blue or red or green. And I'm not trying to minimize the things we pray for because we're praying for family, loved ones who may be dying of cancer. It may be us. We may be upside down financially. We may have marriages that are a wreck. We may have all kinds of difficult situations with our children, with our jobs. We could go on and on. And sooner or later, we're gonna, I'm going to trouble you more. You're going to be depressed by the time we leave. Unless you understand who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our lives. What he wants to do in our lives is not what we would choose to do, but what the Father would choose to do in that moment. We have the list of our shortcomings, and the Bible is nothing but a great list of his strengths and everything that he's doing. The problematic promises listed here are greater things than these. Will you do? Ask anything and I will do it. I think, oh, I would ask great things then. I will ask to to end world hunger to stop the problems of poverty, to, to heal all the different health issues that are going on in the world. But I get about that far in my nobility slides, and then I'm praying that, Lord, would you please just like get a break in traffic? Could you have next weekend, my son is getting married, my youngest son, and would you have good weather? And my noble things go by the wayside pretty quick, and I'm suddenly asking for things that just serve me. And in this moment, as this whole thing lays out, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. 
that Jesus, who has been with the Father, who knows who God is, knows who God the Father is, Jesus himself says, even the the words that I say are words that are God speaking through me. Not the words that I might choose, the words the Father chose. This question is a question of obedience. Would we give our life to God and say, God, do what you will with my life? Or do we come to him and say, God, do my will? This is what Jesus is about to do in the garden, this very prayer. Father, I pray that you would, this cup would pass from me, but not my will be done, but yours. I love that prayer because it's still, he still prays his desires. We're not wrong to pray our desires. We're not wrong to take our burdens and bring them to the Father. But we have to bring them to the Father understanding that at this moment, I don't want two widows with a cat or without a cat to make the decision. There's a group of people up here, front row. That's awesome. I don't want you deciding how the world ends how it begins, what tomorrow holds. As nice as you look, as nice as I I know you to be, I don't want you dictating the future. You either, especially you. (laughs) This is going to go bad. I'll stop there. There's one that we should come before. And as he says in the second part, if you ask anything in my name, That's not a, in the name of Jesus, I claim this. It's the desires that I want, Lord, that they would be in your name, in your will, in the way you would have it, in my name. It's as if it was like his will written out and says, this is signed by Jesus. This is my will. This is the way I would do it, in my name. That what we would pray is that, Lord, those things that I would want would actually be the same things you would want. That should be our prayer. And in that, those are the things God does. Greater things than these. Up until that time, Jesus had not yet been crucified. He had not yet rose again. Sins had not been forgiven. And at that point in time, when Jesus says this, he's saying, greater things than these you will do. The things that had been done at that point, had the water turned into wine, He'd walked on water, he'd calmed storms, he'd fed the 5,000, he'd made a lame walk. He had done these things. They were wonderful things, but those are physical things. The spiritual things were still to come. And watch what Jesus does here. He stops and says, greater things than than I have done will you do. And then he goes to be with the Father. And at that point, the disciples are handed the baton to go out and lead the world to Christ, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Somebody led you to the Lord. Somebody led that person to the Lord. Somebody led that person to the Lord. And that line continues all the way back to the disciples who were sitting in the upper room on this day when Jesus says, greater things than these will you do. And they began to do them. It's one thing to do a miracle that's on the physical level. It's a complete other thing to be used by God to bring another soul to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so they can have eternity with the Father in heaven. He gave that to us. That we might take this truth forward to a world that desperately needs it. 
I want to close with a story that when I, uh, years ago, I was speaking at a high school, and as I was speaking at this high school, I have to be honest and say my biggest concern was whether I connected with the high school students, whether they thought it was cool or not, whether they liked me, whether they liked the talk. And that was really what I was wrapped up into. And after I was done with the talk, I was hopeful that students would come down and want to talk to me. And nobody did but one kid, a kid named Gilbert. And Gilbert comes down and he says, hey, can I talk with you? And then let your hearts be troubled. Gilbert pours out his life and he stops and says, my dad is abusive. He hits me. He's been hitting my mom. So my mom says no more. She's getting a divorce. We live on a dairy farm and we have to move in order to end this with my dad, we have to move. So I'm losing my home. I'm losing my room. I'm losing my dad. I'm losing everything. But what you were talking about today, could you tell me more about Jesus? And that day I got to lead Gilbert to the Lord and I shared the gospel with him. And at that moment, I didn't feel like it was the greater works. There are days when I think I'd rather walk on water. But the greater works, that walking on water lasts just until, in Peter's case, just a few seconds. But the reality is this. We all carry with us that truth that Jesus is giving to them this day. He stops and says, let not your hearts be troubled. Instead, focus on what's far greater, far higher, that you can have a relationship with God. And I am telling you that I am going to give you that power to take that gospel out into the world and you're going to do even greater things than these. This church, filled with believers, are all evidence that that's true. That God does just that. This is... The question now, who is your Jesus? You should have gotten a card. Um, Let me see if I've got one right here. Um, I don't think I do. The card itself, if you got the card, um, I won't need it. Just You can hold it up. Thank you, though. But it just simply says, on one side, there are some words, and on the top are some of the things that you might be carrying, some of the challenges with it. And then on the bottom are the things about God that we know about him. And then on the back side, it says, who is your Jesus? And we want you, as we go into this next song, is it's going to be talking about this very issue and the burden that comes with it. And we ask you to simply stop and ask yourself, who is Jesus to me? Who do I think he is? Is he involved in my life? Does he care? Do I put him down low and keep the expectations low so I don't ever have to risk him failing? Or is Jesus intimately involved in an internal way doing incredible things? As we begin to sing, we just ask that you would do just that. Reflect on the idea and the question of who your Jesus is.